After this, I heard what sounded like a huge crowd in heaven. They said, Hallelujah, the salvation and glory and power of our God. His judgments are true and just because he has judged the great prostitute who ruined the earth by her whoring, and he exacted the penalty for the blood of his servants from her hand. Then they said a second time, hallelujah, smoke goes up from her forever and always. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who is seated on the throne, and they said, amen, hallelujah. Then a voice went out from the throne and said, praise our God, all you his servants and you who fear him, both small and great. And I heard something that sounded like a huge crowd, like rushing water and powerful thunder. They said, hallelujah, the Lord our God, the Almighty, exercised his royal power. Let us rejoice and celebrate and give him the glory. For the wedding day of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. She was given fine, pure white linen to wear, for the fine linen is a saint's act of justice. Then the angel said to me, write this, favored are those who have been invited to the wedding banquet of the Lamb. He said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said, don't do that. I'm a servant just like you and your brothers and sisters who hold firmly to the witness of Jesus. Worship God. The witness of Jesus is a spirit of prophecy. It's the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Can you all pray with me? Uh, Lord, open my lips that my mouth might declare your praise. Uh, uh, open our ears that we might hear, uh, not from me, but from you. Uh, use your spirit to work uh, these words into us uh, deeply that we might be good soil uh, for something uh, beautiful to grow. Thanks for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, just coming back from vacation, and I've been learning a lot before and during vacation about the idea of utopia. Utopia, of course, is the idea that humans can create the perfect place here on Earth. Uh, over vacation, I laughed when I came in and saw this setup uh, because we had just been at Bush Gardens, which is like another like kind of uh, fake Africa uh, theme, you know? So uh, it, Utopia uh, experiments, they, they differ in shape and, and intent, but they, they're often some sort of, of like um, fake attempt at reality, right? At some sort of enclosure. These experiments have kept popping up in books that I'm reading just all over different kinds of books or podcasts that I've been into. It's, it's said or, or hypothesized that during times of a lot of stability, as a culture, we start to get obsessed with dystopias, like we're, we're feeling pretty safe, so we start to think about um, uh, how, how a society gone wrong might be. So this is like Hunger Games and Children of Men and, and Handmaid's Tale and, and uh, my favorite, Water World, right? But then, then during more strained times, culturally, we, we go the other way and we try to think about 
what a, what a more perfect place would be like. And so spoiler alert, utopias always go wrong. Utopia doesn't exist because there are people in utopia. <laughs> and even if there weren't, you'd be there. And each of these stories that, I, that I've been hearing or reading about, like whether they're religiously inspired, like cults or like pseudo-monastic communities that try to get away, um, or whether they're like really aesthetic driven, like hippie communes or artist colonies, all of them have in common what Francis Spufford coins the human propensity to foul things up, which is sin, basically, right? So anyways, one of the failed utopias that I really found interesting was called Biosphere 2. Does anyone know about Biosphere 2 in Arizona? It was built in the 80s, and there's great hubris just from the start because they called it Biosphere 2 because, of course, Biosphere 1 is the planet Earth, right? <laughs> Sequels are never that good, right? <laughs> not never. Mostly not that good. And Biosphere 2 also inspired the brilliant cinematic feat starring Pauly Shore in the 1996 mockumentary Biodome, starring a lesser Baldwin, right? Biosphere 2 was supposed to be a dynamic replica of the original planet Earth. It had different, you can go back to the other slide, <laughs> please. It had different like, each of those is, is like a different climate zone. Um, there's rainforests and desert and, and all of these things. And, and I honestly think they wanted to see if they could do it, but also this is a little bit of a precursor to like if we can colonize the moon too, right? Like think about the 80s. So surely this group of humans would be up to the task. These eight people could live enclosed without getting anything, even air from the outside for two years, no problem, right? Not quite. After two years of eating a lot of sweet potatoes, like so many sweet potatoes, their palms started to turn orange because that's the only thing they could grow. And then they depleted the soil so much because sweet potatoes don't really give a whole lot. They take a whole lot. They lost a lot of weight, and they would go up to the, you see how it's glass? They'd go up to the glass, and there'd be people like at a theme park looking on the outside, and they would just see, and remember, this is the 80s, people getting bigger and bigger over the course of two years, and they're getting smaller and smaller inside. This is probably what fish think about, you know? And, and they also, over the course of those two years, they divided into two camps, two factions that hated each other so much they barely spoke to each other except to, you guess it, farm sweet potatoes, right? And, and they, also, they also had elevated levels of greenhouse gases and not a lot of oxygen. So they were really lightheaded eating sweet potatoes, hating each other after these two years. And, and actually, one of the first missions, they, they opened it up so that they could pipe some air in really fast because they were so lightheaded. It was like living in Denver and eating sweet potatoes day and night, right? <laughs> Bio, Biosphere 2 wound up being an essential failure. Like, it taught us some things, and actually, it taught us a lot, kind of like about now. <laughs> um, but basically, it was back to the drawing board for the next working utopia. What's amazing to me, in light of where we are and where we've been in John's revelation, is just how similar 
that Biosphere 2 story is to the origin story of Babylon. Present day Iraq, Babylon has this rich biblical history that's like part myth and part parable and part historical chronicle. Babylon makes its first appearance in Genesis 12 when a unified humanity decides to build a tower to God to, quote, make a name for themselves. Perhaps this is a hint that flying under the banner of the name of the Lord God wasn't quite good enough. But who can blame them for, like, ambition and innovation, right? We all know the story. We all know the story, right? Like, this is a godly place where we should know the story. Our kids know the story. That God confused their languages, knocked down their tower, and scattered them. There's no more understanding, no more working together. There's still bricks to be made and stacked just with the spirit of competition and like a zero-sum tribalism. <clears throat> they sought out to build a utopia. That was, I mean, maybe it was a utopia. At best, it was God-adjacent that it might like come near to God. At worst, it was probably God-usurping. Like, I don't know if they were building a tower to God as much as they were building a tower past God. And we call this, of course, idolatry. What they got, they set out for utopia, and what they got was the origin story for the boom town known as Babylon. Last week, Sarah helped guide us through some of the really difficult imagery in Revelation for Babylon. The great prostitute is what it's called in our text. In Sarah's college Prof taught really well that um, story, that storying these hard things in these really dense ways gives us like potholder handles for unadulterated blazing hot truth that we couldn't deal with otherwise. And it's a mistake to miss how complicated and unstable these pictures are. Like we, they, we need to read them like hyper real histories that haven't even finished yet, right? Histories mostly in the past. These are hyper-real histories that have happened, are happening, will happen, right? And it's often the mistake when we read history that we assume that we're equipped to interpret history well, that we stand from some privileged place, uh, some vantage point, and that we won't step on the same landmines as those made infamous by history. We assume that in this story we would be God's people uh, when Babylon falls, God's people are cheering, and then all the kings and merchants are like tearing their hair out and weeping because of the collapse of this empire that they relied on. We assume we'd be God's people cheering, definitely not the people that were upset because their prosperity is being thrown into the sea like a cinder block. But Revelation says that the verdict is in, and Babylon is found wanting. Perhaps for as painful and messy as all this imagery is, this is why, this is exactly why Babylon is shown in that imagery as like a sex worker. That Babylon is one tangled up in this whole twisted economy for whom intimacy gets commodified, one in whom like violence and coercion run amok and you're often being manipulated. You're, you're making your living by the very thing that's hurting you. At some level, Babylon is stuck in this, but she also participates in her own downfall. This is, she's a captive, but she's also an agent. I can't tell if Babylon is supposed to be like a microcosm 
for what we see when we open up our doors or read our newspaper, like the impulses towards greed and power and sexualization like everywhere all the time around us, or if Babylon is like a macrocosm of all these mutations that happen in each and every one of us that run right through us, between us, it's probably both, <laughs> to be honest. So before you get too down on Babylon, consider you're probably a resident of Babylon. But finally, in Revelation, God's people see the end of this place, the end of this mindset, the end of this enslavement. Among the crowd watching this downfall, it must have felt kind of like freedmen watching the embers climb as the old plantation burns to the ground, right? At, at least some of God's people must have felt some sort of vindication as they remembered their slave song that Psalm 137 recounts from their Babylonian captivity. The song says, by the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps for there our captors asked us to sing songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Babylon. God's people are singing people. The ones always hoping, always looking for the Lord to put a new song on their lips. They were once sitting, weeping, in stunned, sobbing, humiliated hush. This is their relationship with Babylon. This is their history. They've been there. They know the place well. They even were instructed by one of their prophets, Jeremiah, and this is like the famous greeting card verse, Jeremiah 29. I know the plan, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. That's in Babylon that the Lord's telling them that. That the Lord's telling them to take up residence there. Get married, have kids, plant gardens, become neighbors. So while exile is, no, is a place of no future, it was now their home. This is like kind of the opposite of a love it or leave it mentality, right? This is, this is like the, the wisdom of staying, the wisdom of transforming, the wisdom of being in but not of. This was their life in Babylon. So chapter 19 starts with this common phrase, after these things, and that's like a transition. That's our segue. That's what's next. A segue into something new. We're headed back into the, the worship and song that we've been encountering all along. Revelation is a song book. Before, before we, in the last couple of chapters, chapters, we had this detour attending to the powers in chapter 17 and 18. Those silenced singing people were now being given back a song. And it's kind of surprising, the song that they're given. It's actually surprising that it took them this long. In, in John's vision thus far, this is the first time. It's taken 19 chapters before we hear the word alleluia. That would be a, a, a praise and worship staple for them. And it's taken them 19 chapters to be able to say praise the Lord. In light of the experiences of God's people, this present, future, 
praise the Lord is both surprising and cathartic. They're finally getting it off their lips. It's, uh, to borrow a phrase of one of my friends, Mike Taylor, it's kind of like an alleluia anyhow is, is what's happening here after these 19 chapters. It finally comes after wondering if they could ever again sing these words of confidence and praise. There, there are like four, if, if you caught them when Gary was reading, four anyhow alleluias in this. Verse 1 says, Alleluia, the salvation and glory and power of our God. His judgments are true and just. Verse 3, Alleluia, smoke goes up from Babylon forever and always. Verse 4, the 24 elders and four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne, and they said, Amen, Alleluia. I almost feel like every time I say Alleluia, you guys should say praise the Lord. Can we do that? Can we do that a couple times? Alleluia. The salvation and glory and power of God. Alleluia. Smoke goes up from Babylon forever. The 24 elders and four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne, and they said, Amen, Alleluia. Yeah, Alleluia. The Lord, our God, the Almighty, exercises royal power. Let us rejoice and celebrate and give him the glory. These are ecstatic interjections that look back on the destruction of Babylon. They celebrate the finality and the goodness of God's judgment, that God got it right in God's good timing. And they kind of seem to gather up the old and the new. That's what's happening with the 24 elders and the four creatures. Like God's old people, God's new people, God's complete people in all of creation, all of the stakeholders are at the table to redound and to remember well and to verify and to stamp and amen on it all. Let it be so. And then they're done looking back. And they start to look forward to what's next. I think that's what a good anyhow hallelujah does. It remembers all of the junk that you've gone through and all the drama and all the trauma and all the ways that you were complicit in sick cycles and inequitable economies. It accounts for all of the ways that all of this seems so unbelievable and complicated and intractable and desperate and it breaks through the silence or the distraction or the despair that is tempting when faced with these sorts of conditions and odds. It's tempting not to trust anymore, but that sort of mistrust and that sort of infidelity is much more Babylon than it is Zion. It takes all of these things into consideration in, in a short, memorable chorus of resistance and worship and reorientation and relief simply says, Alleluia. Yeah. This Alleluia is like shouting into the wind. Despite how much easier it would be to seek comfort or to not get your hopes up anymore, nevertheless, God's people persist in praising the Lord. And this is the only way they've lasted in Babylon this long in the first place. So you're invited to do this too. You're invited to say hallelujah. Yeah, good. You're getting better. You're invited to say this when you're upset or when you're confused when you're disillusioned, when you're worn out from headlines and tweets and endless news cycles of injustice and antagonism, when you feel trapped, when you feel stuck, when you feel lonely, when you feel disoriented, when you feel disappointed, you can say, Alleluia. Yeah. 
You can say hallelujah in the midst of it all because of this apocalypse, this unveiling that says that this is all a foregone conclusion and that there is a four times warranted hallelujah at the end of it all anyways. So why don't we start our hallelujahs now? And perhaps just perhaps it might unveil, it might open us up in the present to what all this means and is for. It might actually give us some wisdom and perspective. We didn't happen when, when we came to the table in the first place. With the help of the Spirit, we can muster these words. Saying this might just show us what catastrophe is and what salvation is and what the difference is because so often we get them confused and we wind up praying for the exact wrong thing or ignoring answered prayers because they weren't in the form that we wanted or were ready for. So we need an apocalypse like this to open our eyes and our imaginations before it's too late. So these Alleluia songs extol attributes and virtues of God. Salvation and glory and power, justice and truth, even just God's foreverness in the midst of all this rubble and aftermath of the city they thought would always stand. It might then come as a bit of a non sequitur that this whole thing then shifts to a wedding feast the wedding feast of the Lamb. We didn't even know the Lamb was engaged, and there's a wedding feast, right? But this is precisely what salvation is, what salvation should be. Not, a, not only a saving from something, more on that next week, though, but a saving for something. Some versions of pop Christianity that you might be really familiar with, focus almost exclusively on what Jesus is saving you from, and there's not a whole lot of vision on what you're supposed to be saved for. Maybe this is like what the T stands for, and some sociologists of religion refer to America's like religion as, as moralistic therapeutic deism. Have you ever heard of this? Moralistic therapeutic deism, it rolls right off the tongue, right? But if we're always being saved from something, that's really therapeutic to us. That helps us. That makes us feel good. This is the updated religion for America's version of Babylon. Because it's a belief system that sounds and feels really familiar. It doesn't actually need much of a story. It's not super hot to handle because we can kind of get our hands around the idea of a vague God who loves us and has a wonderful plan for our life and never really messes with who we want to be and who we are. Rare, this God rarely has much to say to us when we're hanging out in exile. This moralistic, therapeutic God, deism, right? But Revelation, as the capstone of the Bible, speaks of salvation. Like robust, full salvation. Revelation ascribes this as something belonging to and befitting from our God. The Hebrew root of the word salvation, yasha, is also the root of the name Joshua. And you guessed it, Jesus. How about that, right? Hebrew lesson for today. You can talk to Justin later. He'll fill you in. This, this word speaks of salvation as, like, we don't even know what that means. We assume it's just some sort of escape, and it is a deliverance, but it's mostly being made more expansive is what this word means. 
being delivered from cramped and pressed upon space into somewhere more capacious, given more bandwidth, being liberated, made wide and sufficient to be or to live in abundance. This is what salvation really is. This is why John 10.10 says, I came to give you life and life to the full, overflowing, abundant life. I hope this starts to unblock why Jesus starts his, his, uh, his ministry with a wedding feast and why there's this wedding feast where we start praising the Lord for God's salvation and glory and power. So wedding feast is the perfect sign, symbol, and instrument of that very salvation. It's a party. It's conviviality. It's abundance. It's a celebration of fidelity. It's the sort of thing that is unthinkable and inequivalent with the ways of Babylon. Sure, Babylon had good parties, but they weren't good parties. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> they're distraction parties. They're debaucherous parties, but they're not good parties. People weren't dressed for it. Because the dress code is white linen, is what our passage says. I'm not really a linen guy, but I better get used to it, right? <laughs> this white linen is worn by the everyday holy ones who do justice, love, mercy, and walk humbly with God. The wedding feast is like the Pentecost to Babylon's tower. It's the opening up and joining together rather than the shutting down and the scattering and it's empathy and listening and understanding instead of scheming and shouting. It's making space for others rather than making a name for ourselves. It's no wonder that Jesus started out in Cana in the small town wedding, turning water into the most and best wine that they couldn't imagine until they tasted it. This is the very feast that we rehearse each time we gather here together, and that we'll do in a minute here. It's known as the Lord's Table, the Lord's Supper, Communion. It's also known as Eucharist, which means thanksgiving, giving thanks. Like matching abundance with an abundance of gratitude. When we gather as ordinary saints around ordinary gifts made extraordinary, the body and blood of Jesus, we give thanks by feasting. By letting this mystery and this abundance get into us. To let it recapture our hearts, recapture our imaginations in our bodies, week upon week upon week. So we can live lives of hope and abundance and healing and transformation and hospitality and mercy in all the places that we're going to go from here. That's why we gather to send. In making the table the center of our worship life together, we testify that salvation is always personal, but it's never private. We do this together. Salvation is something we participate in together. We share in this big space, this abundant life made possible by the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Eugene Peterson puts it this way. He says, salvation on the one hand is Christ on the cross, and risen from the tomb. But on the other, it's eating bread and drinking wine. In the Eucharistic meal, these can't be separated. Salvation is both Christ on Golgotha and Christ in me, or Christ in us. Or we might add, the lamb on the throne 
and us at the Lamb's Feast. That's what salvation is, participating in and witnessing to the gentle, sacrificial life that is the only reality in this world of counterfeits. So this section today that we, we read, and, and we're going to pick this up next week, it ends in a blessing or like a, like a beatitude. It's dictated to John by an angel, a celestial messenger. And Sarah talked about this last week, that this angel is kind of messing with John at this point. Uh, John gets the words, and they're so great that he falls down at the angel's feet to worship, and the angel says, don't do that. Like, don't do that. Get up. Uh, like last week, like, why are you amazed? You know, like, I almost get the sense that, like, the angel is like the ghost of Christmas present in Scrooge, the, the actor on Kimmy Schmidt who's crazy, right? Um, it's just like messing with John constantly in these visions. Like, he says, don't do that. This angel says, I'm just a servant. I'm just like you. I'm just like your brothers and sisters who hold firmly to this witness, who resist the tugs and pulls of Babylon in the name of Jesus. Worship God instead. I like to think, you know, that, that this, this goes on and on, this conversation. And, and let's not neglect the message here. He says, blessed, favored are those who have been invited to the wedding banquet of the Lamb. That's just the message. Blessed are those who have been invited. All who have been invited. Notice it doesn't say all who accept the invitation. Everyone that got to save the date is blessed, right? We should all be prepared to accept this invitation, right? Do you remember the parable where Jesus tells about the wedding feast? And Jesus always tells these really thinly veiled parables about there was a guy who invited people to a wedding and people didn't accept the invitation because they had all these excuses. And I wonder what our excuses would be. Like they were like, I'm getting married. I bought a field. I have some oxen that I need to test out. I don't think that we have some farmers. So that, those actually might be valid excuses here. I think they'd be like, I bought something on Amazon Prime Day and I'm waiting for it to show up at my door. It's too hot to dress up, you know. I'm not sure I'll know anyone there. I'll catch the replay stream later. You know, those might be like our excuses. This Luke 14 parable, the servant then comes back and reports all these excuses. And the master orders him to quote, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. This is the same blessed guest list of the wedding feast of the Lamb. Those spun out, injured, and treated as disposable by empire, by Babylon, are now welcome guests of honor by the slaughtered Lamb. In short, you've never met anyone who wasn't invited. Surprisingly, the least likely to make most guest lists, those laboring for peace and justice and obscurity for a long time, at great cost, are the ones best dressed for this party. They've been in the holiness business for some time, and they know how to get dressed in linen, right? So this is our call, too. This is our call today to embrace an alleluia, to, to fill in those, those, those hard and those sad and those strange gaps with alleluia. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
It's to join Christ in this work of justice. And it's to answer this invitation to the Lamb's party. You all pray with me. Lord, thanks for this, this vision, this vision that is, is future, but it's also now, and, and it, it requires a, a whole lot from us now. It requires that we are not just invited, but we accept your invitation to participate in your kingdom here and now, to get married, have kids, plant gardens, and be neighbors in this Babylon that we live to love this place, but not to love it more than, than you. To invest in this place, but mostly to invest in the kingdom. Lord, give us wisdom on how to do this. Give us imaginations for how to do it. It's going gonna, it's gonna to take some wild imaginations to figure out how to beat swords into plowshares, how to, how to make things that were meant for violence and, and hurt into implements um, for flourishing. Help us do it together, uh, not because we're trying to make some sort of utopia, but we're, we're being fit for your kingdom here. Thanks for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.